the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. It is indeed, and hour number two is underway now at nine minutes past ten o'clock on this Thursday, the 29th and penultimate morning of the month of November in the year of our Lord, 2018. Thanks so much for being with us. Got a really, really, couple of really interesting uh, uh, conversations that need to be had about race in this country, and uh, I'm going to spring them on our next guest, even though I didn't plan to do this. I talked with Peter yesterday about what we were going to discuss on the program today. Now I'm about to throw him a curveball. Peter Kirsten out. I praised you enough in the first hour. You weren't around to hear it because you usually don't like to hear those things. They embarrass you. Uh, so I'm not going to go through your entire bio again this hour, but I will say good morning now to our friend Peter Kersenow on AM 1420 The Answer. Good morning, Pete. Bob, how you doing? You know, it's only 119 days into the <laughs> Indians opener, just 122 days into the home opener, and 220 days until we get the All-Star game back in Cleveland. Uh, I like all of that. That's well done. Uh, hey, Pete, do you watch? Uh, do you watch Cavs last night? I watched a portion of it. I was working, but I did see a portion of it. You know, I I saw the part where they were they had about an eleven point lead, and then um, Westbrook started to go to work. And then I saw again. I tuned in again about uh, end of the third, beginning of the fourth. They'd already closed the gap, and they were going to start to run away with it. So it was a little disappointing. Okay, the only reason I ask it, I'm just wondering how you even have time to keep up on the sports. Uh, as I mentioned, I was talking about you at the top of the show, just as I you know, previewed our conversation for 10.05, and, uh, and I was talking about your amazing ability to multitask and do all of the things you do, such as serve clients, run a law firm that you're a partner in, work in D.C. with the Civil Rights Commission, and all writing four books, uh, and all the different things that you're doing. And yet, you also know, to the day, uh, until the World Series, uh, if I ask you for stats from Colin Sexton, rookie year you probably have them if i ask you I don't, baker mayfield I, I, I don't have his stats from his rookie year but he did <laughs> he did have 10 rebounds yesterday he's trying to emulate um 
by Russell Westbrook. I was Do amazed. You, 21 points, 10, re- 10 rebounds. Have, have you managed to uh, to somehow alter and affect the space-time continuum to the point where there are more down, <laughs> there are more hours in a, in a person now day than there are in a regular person's day? Because yeah, I don't know how you're, you're doing, man. You're very kind. I just no, have, I'm not yeah, kind. I'm, I'm not. I'm, 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 I'm in awe. I'm, 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 I'm jealous. I'm, I'm, I'm furiously jealous. I, I, I'm seriously jealous that I can't do the things that you can do. Uh, so, no, I'm not kind at all, Pete. I'm just I'm in awe of what you're able to do. Um, Peter, I, I obviously, you know, we spoke yesterday, and we're going to talk a little bit about the caravan and uh, the issue on the border, which you are very well versed in, and I want to get your thoughts on that. But um, I also did a little research yesterday and came across a story that I talked about this last segment about um, white liberals and how they speak to black audiences. I don't know if you, were, um, if you have seen this or not, so I'll, I'll give you a little background here. This study was done by liberal Ivy League universities, and I know you are an Ivy League grad. I'm just calling the way it is. This is Yale, and this is Princeton. And two professors, one in each of the uh, universities, combined to do this study and to report its findings. And what they found was that white liberals, including politicians, tend to dumb down their language when speaking to black audiences compared to when they speak with uh, with white audiences. They use a lower level of comp- what they called competent words and more warmth words when speaking to uh, to minority audiences, uh, while conservatives or, or, or Republicans or right-leaning speakers, including politicians, some presidential candidates, had no distinguishable change at all in the way they addressed black audiences and white audiences. Bringing to bear what we, what you, you know, bringing to light rather what I and so many others have said for a long time. Liberals are racist. Liberals do not believe black people to be competent enough to understand their highbrow dialect and their vernacular. They don't, <laughs> yeah. they don't believe they're competent enough to understand, uh, you know, complex theories and, 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 and issues. They don't think they're competent enough, Pete, to get a driver's license. That's why, um, right. uh, voter ID, voter ID laws are racist and disproportionately impact black people because they're not competent enough to get, uh, to get identification. It, it, it's just, it, this isn't news to me, but it's it, news nope. to me that, that two liberal university professors studied this and actually reported the findings to prove it. Yeah, it's good that they reported it, and it would take a liberal academic from the Ivy League to be surprised by what almost everybody else knows, but particularly black conservatives who've known it for decades. Look, I will tell you that in my experience, if I were to catalog the occasions in which I was able to discern true discrimination or condescension or disparate treatment toward me, it was almost universally uh, liberal. And thank goodness, the, the type of discrimination I experienced was mild compared to what would occur, say, 70, 80 years ago. So, you know, mm-hmm. no big deal. But it almost universally came from liberals. And you're, the, the study, I haven't read it, but it's, I've, I know that there's been at least one other study similar to that that uh, was produced about 20 years ago, showed something quite similar, uh, not about politicians, but I think about academics and how they spoke to uh, black students. And the presumption was, of course, that black students were not competent, and uh, there was always a type of a condescending tone. They would dumb down the language. They would patronize. They would, you know, almost like painting by numbers in order to try to convey a concept to not just blacks, but almost any minority. It kind of evinces the Uh, old statement by Teddy Roosevelt that wasn't actually made in a racist way, but he said we have to raise up our little brown brothers. And that's kind of the perspective as a black conservative that I saw, not among all liberals. Look, I'm not saying that, but when you see it, 
It comes almost invariably from liberals. And I think you just mentioned something about, you know, um, uh, voter ID or something. What you see quite often, I see this before the Civil Rights Commission, it's patronizing, it's maddening. I call it out when I can. But you, you see this... Um, talking about the raising up of the little brown brothers, a significant portion of the impetus behind affirmative action is well-meaning, but also part of it is because there is a significant cohort of liberals who truly do believe, and and there was a study on this with respect to uh, uh, deans of various schools, that they really do believe that without affirmative action, that the cause of integrating blacks and, and Hispanics into higher education is almost hopeless, that you only get an infinitesimally small percentage of blacks and Hispanics into higher education, and that um, they don't hold blacks to the same standard. You mentioned voting requirements. I mean, it's, it's incredible if you sit, as I do on the Civil Rights Commission, and hear what witnesses say that are just ridiculous terms. I, I was in, Bob, uh, a, um, you know, this strikes me. It just occurred to me. Think about the person who probably most often has used patronizing, uh, condescending tones or what he perceives to be the idiom of the black community when speaking to black crowds. It's not, and I've heard a number of them, Joe Biden, you know, Bill Clinton is famous for it, uh, uh, Harry Reid is famous for it, uh, Hillary Clinton. Hillary um, was the first one that I, I thought of, and I, in fact, I used that last segment. I talked about her, and I ain't no ways tired of her tend to change her dialect and her vocabulary when she's around black audiences. But here's the interesting thing. I guarantee you the person, if you go back and look at the tapes, the person who is most often invoked a quote-unquote black dialect is... Barack Obama. Watch him when he's before black audiences versus white audiences. Now, some of that is there is a tendency among blacks to speak in a certain idiom with other blacks. But he does that when he is in a, in a mixed audience or um, any other kind of audience. He does that for a purpose. Part of it is to kind of get an affinity with the audience, as a lot of uh, politicians do. But if you listen to it very closely, part of it is because when he's speaking to, like, um, when he goes up to speak to the Detroit Economic Council, he doesn't use those tones, not at all. He's speaking like what he perceives to be a University of Chicago law professor to speak like, even though he wasn't a professor there. He was simply a lecturer. But that's how he speaks. When he speaks to a a predominantly black audience, he tones it down. He doesn't just speak in the idiom, but he tones down the the actual words he's using. They aren't million-dollar words. They are, you know, words that you would speak to maybe to your child with. Uh, so there's a lot of patronizing going on down around here, as they might say. But it almost universally comes from the left, and black conservatives have known this for decades. Yeah, and, and the, the part about this study that is surprising is that the results were surprising to those who studied. Uh, right, right. It, it yeah, this, surprised them. Cindy Dupree, assistant professor of organizational behavior at the Yale School of Management, co-wrote this with... Oh, Susan Fisk of Princeton, and they said uh, that this was uh, very disappointing and surprising. It was, quote, an unpleasant surprise to see this subtle but persistent effect, even if it's ultimately well-intentioned, this could be seen as patronizing on the part of the liberals. And that's something, again, that I would not be surprised with at all, because we have known this for a very long time. Yeah, no, no disrespect to these professors, because I don't know who they are. They're probably well-meaning or something, but it's it's astonishing to me that they could be surprised. I don't think they were, Pete. 
I don't. Th- I'm sorry. I don't no. think they were well-meaning. I think they wanted to find the opposite. That's why they're oh, saying, "Well, here's our study," and that. it was very, very disappointing to us to learn that it isn't uh, conservative-minded people that think less of black people. It's liberal-minded people. But liberals have this high self-regard about themselves, so that's why they would be surprised. It's like, oh, it couldn't be us, just as you've indicated. Okay, right. we, we, we are good people, you know, not like those evil uh, conservatives out there, who all of whom are racist, especially if you listen to MSNBC, CNN. Clearly, <laughs> all conservatives are racist. Um, but it, it brings to mind one other incident with respect to uh, Obama. About oh, before Obama became president, I testified on a panel with Obama. He had introduced a ridiculous bill called the Voter Practices and Deceptive Practices and Voter Intimidation Act. It was the worst written bill I'd ever seen. Uh, and I could, one of these days, Bob, when you have more time, I will discuss all the implications of that bill and what happened in that, that hearing because it's I would like to. as to who Obama really is and what he's like and his competency level, too. But nonetheless, during the course of that hearing, which was about voting practices, you heard the most ridiculous things, many of which came from Obama, about the ability of blacks to discern, for example, when voting time is. Poor blacks out here are so, you know, so incompetent that they don't even know what time to go to vote or what day voting is. And it was just, it was stunning. It was almost as if they were presuming that blacks were so infantile that they needed all of this assistance and protections just to vote. If the franchise, if voting is that important, any person who is barely competent is going to do whatever they can to make sure they vote at the right time in the right place, etc. But the presumption was blacks just couldn't get it done, so we've got to come up with all these different protections and mechanisms to ensure that they can get it done. And this has nothing to do with, you know, from 30, 40, 50 years ago, voter, voter intimidation tactics or poll taxes, literacy tests, or anything like that, things that were truly discriminatory. This is that apparently blacks can't figure out how to find an ID, blacks can't figure out where the voting poll is, or what Time they're supposed to or how to, to tell time. Exactly right. It was one of the most uh, insulting things imaginable, and Obama was right in the middle of it. I will definitely have you on. We'll do a special uh, a segment or two or three or four on uh, on that because that, that I would also do love to do a special segment with you on that first step back too. We've talked about it a little bit too uh, um, because that's that's another thing that is purport- that is purportedly being done to curry favor with, in my view, uh, with African-Americans because of the disproportionate number of of blacks in prison. Uh, But, of course, it is only going to hurt more blacks um, when when, when these people are let out. But that's another topic for another show. Let me get a time out here, Pete. We'll come back, and I do want to ask your thoughts on the caravan. You haven't spoken with us since Sunday's pepper spray, tear gas um, uh, attempt to stop the border rush. And, uh, obviously, the people of Tijuana are in very, very dire straits right now. They are sick and tired of their town being overrun by these thousands of migrants who are starting to present serious public health hazards. I want to get your thoughts on all of the above as we continue. Peter Kirstenau, back with us after this on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, 1024, I've got six minutes left to pick the brain of Peter Kersenow about the situation at the border. The caravan that the left told us was never coming. It was a 1,000 miles away. It was a Trump um, uh, tool that he used to stoke fear before the election. Uh, it's going to disperse before it gets to the border. It hasn't dispersed. It's still there, and it's trying to break down the border. Pete, they got about 5,000, 6,000 people being held in an area that is really only supposed to be for about 1,000. People are getting sick. People are hungry. Tijuana is uh, being forced to spend some 
$30,000 a day to try to feed these people and provide them with basic necessities. It is a train wreck at the border. The president says they're not coming in. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think precisely what the president says is going to happen. They're not coming in. Unfortunately, we're all focused on the Tijuana border, but throughout the rest of the Rio Grande border, uh, we still have the same influx of illegal immigrants. And we haven't had any action despite the fact that, look, all due respect to, you know, everybody out there who's trying to work hard on these things, but the bottom line is that we don't have a wall, and we don't have a wall after two years of Republican uh, leadership in the House and Senate. And I get it. It's tough getting things passed, but I haven't even seen any credible attempts, really, you know, the kind of heavy lifting necessary to even put it on the docket for a vote. Uh, so we still have these overriding problems, and now we're going to have a Democratic House of Representatives, and that's not going to happen anymore. So we're going to have these perpetuating problems on the border uh, because certain feckless politicians frankly, don't care much about the United States of America. I'll put it that bluntly. If you cared about this country, you wouldn't let people storm the border. The country is either worth protecting or it's not worth protecting. If you allow these people across the border, that's going to be a signal to everybody in the world that you can come across with impunity or virtual impunity. These folks could have, for example, presented themselves legitimately at points of entry. They could do that. We are a very welcoming and generous country, but they chose to break the law. Not only that, they chose to do so in a violent manner. Not only that, they did so holding flags from other countries, the ones from which they are fleeing, the ones from which they claim they're seeking asylum. If they're so bad, why are they continuing to hold these flags? I mean, look, I don't mean to blame anybody who's escaped from poor circumstances and want to better their lives. But as I said at the outset, there's a mechanism by which to do this, and we bring in more people every year than any other country. So my my question is to those folks who won't build a wall, which is the most humane thing to do to prevent these kinds of things, if there were a wall. No caravan would even begin to get off the ground in Honduras or anywhere else because they knew that they'd know they couldn't get across. What they would do is present themselves in a lawful fashion. So right. blame all those folks who are claiming compassion for these folks for the fact that they're out there sleeping in the rain and now it's getting chilly out there. And as you said, a number of these people are having they've had diseases and they're getting worse. That's one of the reasons why we have an immigration policy. And that's one of the reasons why we try to manage the entry into this country so we don't have communicable diseases that would be raging throughout the country. We are now seeing a proliferation of many diseases that we believed in the United States have been eradicated long ago. We see more outbreaks of chicken pox and every other type. Of, you know, a lot of these folks on the border apparently have been diagnosed already with tur- tuberculosis. Those are the folks that we know we have tuberculosis. Right. You know, how many? How many others? Uh, it's truly astonishing when folks were coming in through Ellis Island. One of the principal objectives was to make sure that these people did not bring into this country any kind of diseases that could spread, any communicable diseases, any diseases that had been eradicated here in the United States. But apparently, Democrats and some other people just don't care. So if your kid or your neighbor gets sick, or if MS13 MS sets up camp in your neighborhood. And 
look, I lived, when I was in Washington, I lived in an area where MSN, uh, MS-13 had just infiltrated the entire place. That's a scary proposition. And one of the most amazing stats I saw, and I didn't realize this, is of those 600 criminals that they're talking about, I just, I don't know, I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. I thought those were 600 criminals that had been criminals in their home country. No! From what I understand, these are folks that DHS has identified as individuals who had criminal records in the United States, had been deported, and are trying to seek entry. Think about how many more have criminal records in their home countries. But this is the kind of thing we don't hear from the press. The, 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 you know, I have problems with Congress and their fecklessness and their inability to protect the country. But if we had a legitimate honest, unbiased press that reported these things in an accurate fashion, there would be more support for the building of the wall, and even Democrats would have to get on board. But unfortunately, we've got a propaganda press that's telling us abject lies, not just falsehoods, lies. And why I say lies is because they know what they're saying is false. There's no question about it. And Pete, the last thing I wanted to ask you, and I know you've got to run and we're late here, but just briefly, the president is trying to force them to go to the ports of entry by his order, as you know from a couple of weeks ago, that anybody who tries to cross illegally will not have their asylum claims heard. We know about the Ninth Circuit judge who said you can't do that, put a stay on it. Now it's being appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and of course it's going to work its way eventually to the Supreme Court. What was your take on John Roberts' condemnation of the president for criticizing that Ninth Circuit judge? I think that the president needs to be circumspect in some of these things about his tweeting habits and everything. But I think John Roberts was flat out wrong. I hate criticizing, you know, a, a justice of the Supreme Court, but I think John Roberts should be spending more time policing and monitoring the Supreme Court and the folks on that court who speak out in ways that they shouldn't be speaking out. Where was he, for example, when um, Ruth Gator Ginsburg on several occasions made political statements? You know, she does that on a regular basis. That's right. And there right. are other justices who've done that. Why not police his own body? He is the chief justice of the Supreme Court, not some kind of commentator-in-chief. Now, having said that, you know, I think, you know, look, uh, I, I have respect for John Roberts, but I think the tone of political discourse could be improved by everybody involved. Um, but, you know, you can't simply point at the president without pointing at others, too. And, and John Roberts was just peculiar. They decided to come out and say something about this president when Obama, on a number of occasions, said things about courts, judges, and especially the Supreme Court. Peter Kersenow, uh, tremendous uh, uh, analysis and observation, as always, my friend. I know you've got a jet. I look forward to catching up with you again tomorrow morning. All right, Bob. Take care. Thank you, Pete. Peter Kersenow on AM 1420. The answer, it's 1031. Let's get news. Come back with more of your phone calls on the Bob France Authority. Progressive Democrats, please be aware you have now entered the place where political correctness goes to die. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Rolling right along, are we? It is 1036. Thank you for joining us on AM 1420. The answer. Really great conversation uh, with Peter Kersenow. Uh If we had more time, and he's very busy, as I noted, <laughs> in a couple of different occasions. Uh, if we had more time, I would have asked him also about the uh, issue that we started the show with today. And that is the issue of President Obama. Uh, former President Obama, rather, taking credit for something that he tried to stop from happening. Uh, 
speaking of the growth of the American uh, 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 oil business, oil industry, as the largest exporter of oil and natural gas in the world. Uh, Barack Obama did his level best to stop that from happening and then sat at Rice University two nights ago on Tuesday night at an event there at the Baker Institute and tried to take credit for it. Uh, I would have asked Pete, and I'll probably ask him tomorrow. Pete is going to come back on with us tomorrow when he has a little bit more time. But if you missed it from this morning's, uh, the uh, first uh, segment this morning, this is what Barack Obama said at Rice. I was extraordinarily proud of the Paris Accords because, uh, look, I know, you know, uh, you know, I, I know we're an oil country, and uh, we need American energy, and and by the way, uh, American energy production. Uh, you wouldn't always know it. Uh, uh, but, you know, it went up every year I was president. Um, and, you know, that whole suddenly America's like the, the biggest oil producer and the biggest guy. Uh, that was me, people. I just want you to. So. So. And the, uh, the otherwise, the otherwise uh, oil industry supporting crowd there at Rice University in Houston. Um decided their loyalty to Barack Obama trumped, no pun intended, their loyalty to the industry that is essentially their very lifeblood. They bought his lie, and they cheered his lie. Yeah, it was a lie. Not that American uh, um, uh, oil production did not go up exponentially when Barack Obama was president. That part is truth. That's the only thing he can get get um, any credit for. But the fact that he said that was me, that's the lie. That's the lie. You wouldn't know what he said, but suddenly America's the biggest oil producer and the biggest gas. That was me, people. No, that was not you. That was in spite of you. That's like the Cleveland Browns winning a game with Hugh Jackson as head coach. They did it in spite of him, not because of him. And they have won much more since he has been gone. In the same way that the United States has. We have won more since Barack Obama has been gone. And Donald Trump's policies have taken effect. Barack Obama tried to kill the oil industry in this country. Barack Obama imposed so many regulations on the oil industry in this country because of what he said at the beginning of his comments there. Because he joined the Paris Climate Accord, which was aimed at stopping fossil fuels from being used so much uh, as energy in the United States and in other developed countries. He wanted to push everything toward wind and solar. Remember Solyndra, the $555 billion boondoggle that he invested our, our money in and, of course, went belly up? He joined the Paris Climate Accords. I was Accords. extraordinarily proud of the Paris Accords because... Uh, he opposed oil drilling and oil exploration and oil exportation. He opposed it all. But it worked. We drilled our way out of the problem anyway because of enough oil uh, uh, derricks and production and drilling on private lands and on state lands where the federal government could not stop them. That's the only reason we were able to explode the oil uh, production and exportation uh, in this country. And he wanted to take credit for it. So it's just, it's just hilarious. Production doubled between 2009 and 2016, Obama's years of service. But it was specifically in uh, direct violation of what he tried to do. And now he wants to actually try to take credit for it, just like he's trying to tra- take credit for the economy, for the unemployment numbers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it's, it's really staggering. And I don't want to beat this into the ground, but I'm going to say it again just briefly. Uh, 
This is a guy who has, who went on tour uh, for a couple of months before November 6th and the, the midterm elections that Democrats won, what, 40 House seats uh, for, uh, in. Uh, he went around the country telling everybody how bad Donald Trump was doing. And yet, when he's done telling everybody how bad Donald Trump is doing, he is trying to take credit for everything that Donald Trump has done. From the lower taxes to the higher uh, uh, GDP to the lower unemployment rate to the lowest food stamp usage rate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's trying to take credit for things that he criticizes the president for doing in the first place. So that matters. All right, a uh, couple of other uh, items. I want to go back to, well, and by the way, phone lines are now open at 216-901-0945. My apologies. Uh, I forgot to tell you that whenever uh, we got done with Peter. Uh, 216-901-0945, Either one of those will get you here. Quick uh, email, by the way. We we don't take email uh, uh, email comments on the air very often, but some old school guys who don't do Twitter and Facebook and who don't like to wait on hold, they will email me. Yeah, I said old school, Ken. Old school. I didn't say old. Just old school. Good morning, Bob. Point number one, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this is going back to a different part of the conversation this morning about um, President um, Obama getting Osama bin Laden. Uh, Bush pl- placed a bounty on the head of bin Laden to the tune of $30 million. The military could not accept bounty money, so what happened to that $30 million? Point two, the fracking permits in the Dakotas and Texas were approved before Al Obama walked into the White House. He was told that he could not stop them. Great point. Point three, Obama is a legend in his own mind. The problem is uh, we have here is that his legacy of is one of a failed socialist policy, and he is preaching to a smaller and smaller base, just like Slick Willie and Queenie. Thanks much, Ken in Lagrange Township. There's Ken's old school commentary by way of uh, by way of email. Uh, we just don't do a ton of that anymore. But I want to pivot uh, briefly, going back to the border, since uh, Peter and I kind of just got only a few short minutes of, of conversation on that. A reminder <clears throat> from Byron York that the law requires our federal government to stop this posturing and stop this uh, uh, this politicking and this negotiation over something that is absolutely mandated by law. And I'm speaking, of course, to the border fence, the border wall. By- <coughs> Excuse me again. <coughs> Byron York writing, The story of the Secure Fence Act is a perfect example of why so many Americans distrust their government. In 2006, an election year, there was a bipartisan consensus to pass a law requiring the construction of a border fence. In 2007, after the election, there was a bipartisan consensus not to enforce it. Still, Public Law 109-367 remains on the books, and it still calls for a border barrier. What President Trump wants to do, in other words, is not new. And it's not exclusive to him. And it is not uh, something that it should, you know, I know he campaigned on it and ran on it, that Mexico will pay for it. And he's never going to be able to get them to write a check for it. All he can do is say, look, we rework NAFTA. It's better for us. We're saving billions uh, in terms of trade. Uh, with Mexico, and so therefore the the border you know the border fence where uh, border wall would be paid for but but aside from all of that he doesn 't have to come through on that because this law predates President Trump from two thousand and six when Bush was in office. This border fence uh, 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 act was was passed, and then they said, well, but we don 't have to enforce it. Well, all they have to do is go back and say, yeah, the law, and Byron York is right. The law required us to do this. We told the American people who voted for us and put us here that this is what we would do, 
And now they have to do it. And they have to fund it. So the president, of course, excuse me, the president, of course, is in a tough spot right now because he knows once the um, Pelosi House of Representatives takes over, once she takes that gavel back, and it's official now, by the way, she will again be the speaker. They decided that yesterday. That he's never going to get the border funding wall, uh, or border funding for the wall that he wants. It has to happen by December 7th, and that's precisely why he has said, I will shut down the government. Or I will allow it to be shut down. And this is key because I talked to Jim Jordan about this on Monday. Um, uh, you know, and I said, you know, are you prepared to shut down the government? And he said, well, it wouldn't be us shutting down the government. It would be more Chuck Schumer deciding that he prioritizes, um, illegal aliens and an open border more than he prioritizes the security of the American people, and he would be willing to shut down the government over that. Okay, here we go with the name-calling, <clears throat> or the um, you know back-and-forth uh, claims about who is actually willing to shut down the government, but the president essentially is saying, I'm okay. If we have to shut down the government temporarily to get the funding for this border wall, or at least the beginning of it, one-fifth of it, Remember, he's only asking for $5 billion. It's supposed to cost roughly $25 billion to complete the entire project. And he's saying, if we can't get it, um, I know I'm not going to get it when Nancy Pelosi takes over. So if we have to shut it down, then we'll shut it down. And I think that's very gutsy. I think it's very uh, bold. And I think it's also very politically dangerous for the president. But I also think it's worth doing. The president of the United States knows that without a secure border without our sovereignty without our liberty we do not have a country if we do not build that wall and we continue to allow another million or two into this country every year illegally by way of caravan or just by way of border rushing river crossing human smuggling etc etc then uh this country is in for a very very bleak future and the president is willing to shut down the government temporarily which means for now, just where there's going to be a little bit of short-term pain for what would be uh, very long-term gain. And, I, and I, I admire the president for that. I do. I do not believe that it is the responsibility of the president of the United States to satisfy all of the needs of all of these unnecessary elements of government at the expense of national security. And, and again, I, 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 I just... When he says he would totally be willing, he's not. He's going to end the fight and the argument about, well, is it Republicans or is it Democrats who take the blame for the shutdown of government? Trump is saying, the hell with all of them. I'll take the blame. I will shut it down because this is that important. And to me, it's very politically dangerous. It is also very courageous. And he's doing exactly what we asked him to do. Uh, I'm trying to find the exact quote here for the president, um, uh, but he did indeed, did indeed use the words uh, would be to- here's here are the words totally be willing to shut down the government totally would totally be willing to shut down the federal government if Congress does not approve five billion for the construction of the wall by the deadline on December seventh because the current spending uh, bill expires on December seventh. Homeland Security demands these funds. All right, uh, let me get a quick time out here. Uh, we'll check our traffic for the final time. We'll come back in and uh, get a few phone calls going. 216 as we wrap up the Bob France Authority on AM 1420, The Answer.
10.53, final segment of the Bob France Authority for this morning edition. Uh, and I really appreciate you being a part of it. Tomorrow we got a free-for-all Friday interrupted partly by a couple of great guests. Peter Kersenow will be back with us uh, tomorrow on the program as well, as well as Rob Walgate and Dave Zanotti from the Public Square uh, Media Network and um, uh, from uh, uh, the American Roundtable, the American Policy Roundtable, rather than the Ohio Roundtable. We're going to talk about Christmas in America, which is coming back to Medina uh, first week of, uh, first week of uh, December. And I'm very much looking forward to going and attending that event as well. All right, let me go to a few phone calls here, and we'll talk first to John in Chardon. John, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Go right ahead, sir. Hey, good morning, Robert. Good morning, Hey, John. early you talked about uh, uh, President Trump lying. He, he lies. And might you be referring to some micro-exaggerations he does to make his points? Uh, he's, I mean, you, sound like a liberal. Pic- you sound like a liberal. When you say something that isn't true, you don't get to you don't get to call it a micro exaggeration unless you're being a liberal excusing a Hillary lie or an Obama lie. They all tell lies. They all say things that are not true. That he is not some sort of superhuman creature who doesn't lie. He he is a human being. He has is a politician and as such uh, John, there are many, many instances of him saying things that are just flat out not true. Don't be a liberal, John. You're better than that. Okay, all right, but but on the same by the same token, he's doing everything he can to fulfill his campaign promises. Which, which is, is why, which is which is what him. I also said in that uh, in that segment in the first hour. The caller, by the way, brought it up and said something about uh, Donald Trump never lying, and I and I said yes, he does, he has. But I also said, however. You know, to me, if you if you go and you go back to Bill Clinton, who's one of the most freaking ridiculous uh, pathological liars in American political history, if you are lying and also doing things either based on those lies or apart from those lies that are harming this country, we're going to have no tolerance for your mis- misstatements and, and untruths. If you are saying things that are untrue whether it be in the form of exaggeration or anything else, but you are delivering results, people are going to overlook that. And that's what most of us do. Uh, we're getting results. And that's what I voted for Donald Trump to do. Not to be, you know, the, um, the altar boy, uh, the, the, you know, the George Washington, I cannot tell a lie. I knew he wasn't that when, when I voted for him. Um, we have seen him say many untruths uh, during his, his public life before becoming a presidential candidate, going back into his life as a real estate mogul and as a, um, you know, as a, uh, uh, an entrepreneur and so on and so forth. Uh, he's not an honest guy any more than a lot of the other ones are, but we voted for him not to be that paragon of virtue, but to get results, to lower our taxes, improve our economy, grow back our military, uh, you know, cut unemployment and all the things that we are talking about on a daily basis. And so we put up with some things that he says because of the great things that he does. Yeah, well, you know, I, I call your attention to one thing he said recently, and that is he says, I'm a better person today because I've been president than I, than I used to be. And, and I think that's true. I do, too. I, I, I would yeah. agree with that. I, I think, you know, you know, what's really odd, generally speaking, politicians are known to be among the greatest liars in the world. Uh, you, like I said before, when, because you are trying to curry favor with different people who want different things and who believe in different things. So you're going to tell each of them, 
something different. I stand up for you because of your belief in this. And then you're going to go to somebody else who has the exact opposite vision and viewpoint and philosophy and ideology and say, I stand up for you. It's like you can't do both. You're going to have to make a decision there. But they lie. And what's interesting is, while Donald Trump, as a new politician now, he is a politician, a pretty experienced one, I would say, given the fact that he ran in 2015. He's been doing this for the better part of four years now, counting the run and the two years of his presidency and his campaigning for other Republicans during those congressional midterms. He's a pretty seasoned politician. While turning into a politician might be what turns some people into liars when perhaps they had been more or less ethically sound and honest in their previous lives or iterations of their lives, I think it's true. Donald Trump, while he continues to be dishonest when he has to be dishonest and honest when in in other occasions, has become a better person. I think the office and the aspirations that he has and that he has given to the American people and his his serious, sincere endeavor and attempt to come through on all of those promises has made him his best self. You know, he's still very petty, he's still very thin-skinned, and he still says things that aren't true from time to time. But I think he, I think he's right when he says he's a better person now than he was when he came in, because I think his aspirations for the people have, have made that happen. Yeah, fair enough. Um... All right, John? Yes, sir. Thank, thank you, my friend. I appreciate your phone call as always, and I hope uh, you know. I hope, I hope nobody takes it personally if I disagree with a call. You have to understand this is—it's never good radio if you just have an echo chamber. If I say something and everybody calls me up and says, "Yeah, right on," I don't mind disagreements at all. And when you call and say something that I disagree with, I hope you don't mind that I criticize or say, "Hey, that's not the way to go." The left claiming that Hillary Clinton is honest is is comical to me. It's hilarious. The left claiming that Bill Clinton is honest, that, that most of them are. It's, it's just so funny. It's so comical. And I will not be that person for my side. I will not claim that my president tells the truth all the time when I know the fact is that he does not. Um, but I will say I will defend him because of the record, because of the work that he is getting done. Rob Walgate joins us tomorrow. Peter Kirsten now makes an encore appearance tomorrow. And we have open lines, free for all Friday tomorrow. I hope you'll join us then. Stay here for Mike Gallagher. We'll see you. Enjoy the silence. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.